welcome back to Ending Explained, a film review podcast that takes a deep dive into those tricky and intriguing open endings. I don't know what it is today, but I have tried starting this intro multiple times. Whatever this version is, we're just going to go with it because I cannot start over again. I'm your host, Kenna Park, and today we're talking about the 2022 black comedy Banshees of Inishirin. I'm trying to sort of do some of the Oscar nominations leading up to Oscars night for this year, and the Banshees of Inishirin is one of those top nominated ones. Also, I promise the episode on Everything Everywhere All at Once is in the works. It is coming. That'll be the next one to come out. I promise. I might also try to cover the movie Tar before the Oscars night, but we will see how school is going for me to see if we can fit that in. <laughs> but for the Banshees of Inishian today, the Oscar nominations for this movie are Best Picture, Director, Actor, two Supporting Actor noms, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, Film Editing, and Original Score. The movie is directed by Martin McDonough. It stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Barry Keegan, and Carrie Condon. The Rotten Tomatoes score, we've got critics at 96, so very high, and then audience score coming in a bit lower with a 75. The critics' consensus says, let's see here, featuring some of Martin McDonough's finest work and a pair of outstanding lead performances, The Banshees of Inishirin is a finely crafted, feel-bad treat. <laughs> And I also agree with how that review looks at both Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson having shit like us sharing two lead performances, but it just worked out that when it comes to Oscar nominations, it's Colin Farrell who's being considered for best actor, and then Brendan Gleeson is nominated for supporting actor along with Barry Keegan, even though Brendan Gleeson was, in my opinion, one of the main parts, but it is what it is, Oscar politics. And then if you don't trust Rotten Tomatoes, like some people out there, the Letterbox score for this is also high. It's a 4.1 stars out of 5. Um, I went to see this in the movies when it first came out in theaters at the end of last year. I loved, loved the overall dark comedy of it all, but I will be honest, I missed a lot of jokes and a bit of the plot the first time I watched it in my struggle to understand the thick Irish accent that's going on. Luckily, I was recently able to rewatch it on HBO with subtitles, and I enjoyed it even more the second time. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm doing my best to pronounce these Irish words and names. I had to look a few up, uh, you know, the whole Google, how do you pronounce this and the little videos. So I'm gonna try to do what the videos uh, tell me to do when it comes to pronouncing these names, but I'm not making any promises. I am a whopping 1 16th Irish. So, yeah, that doesn't help at all. <laughs> Anyways, let's jump into the plot summary. At the tail end of the Irish Civil War in 1923, 
on the fictional Irish Isle of Inishirin, folk musician Colm abruptly begins ignoring his lifelong friend and drinking buddy, Podrick. Podrick, though nice and well-liked by the islanders, is too dull for Colm, who wishes to spend the remainder of his life composing music and doing things for which he will be remembered. Podrick's life is destabilized by the loss of one of his few friends. As Podrick grows increasingly distressed at the rejection, Colm becomes more resistant to his old friend's attempts to speak to him. Colm eventually gives Podrick an ultimatum. Every time Podrick bothers him or tries to talk with him, Colm will cut off one of his own left fingers with a pair of sheep shears. The local police officer, Peter, beats his troubled son, Dominic, severely, and Podrick and his sister, Siobhan, take Dominic for a short time. While delivering milk to the market, Peter insults Podrick, who retaliates by making public the fact that he beats his son. Peter knocks him to the ground, nearly unconscious. Having witnessed this, Colm puts Podrick back in his wagon and drives him home. The two do not speak. Though Siobhan and Dominic attempt to defuse the pair's escalating friendship battle, their efforts prove fruitless. Podrick drunkenly confronts Colm in the pub over his lack of niceness, also confronting Peter over the fact that he molests Dominic. Colm remarks that this is the most interesting Podrick has been and mutters, I think I like him again now. The next morning, not remembering what he has said, Podrick attempts to apologize to Colm, but the conversation goes badly, and Colm responds by cutting off one of his fingers and throwing it at Podrick's door. After Podrick sees Colm meeting with a fiddler from the mainland, Podrick tricks the fiddler into returning home by lying about his father being hit by a bread ban. As the tensions worsen, local elder Mrs. McCormick warns Podrick that death will come to the island soon. Meanwhile, Siobhan gently rejects Dominic's romantic advances. Podrick tells Dominic about what he did to the fiddler, and Dominic says that Podrick is no longer nice. Podrick becomes convinced that this will make him interesting enough for Colm, and he visits Colm to reprimand him for behaving so badly. Colm reveals that he has finished composing his song, which he calls The Banshees of Inishirin. The two appear to be on the point of reconciling when, before leaving for the pub, Podrick mentions that he lied to the fiddler to get him off the island. Instead of meeting Podrick at the pub, Colm cuts off all four of his remaining left fingers and throws them at Podrick's door. Sick of life on the island, Siobhan moves to the mainland for a job in a library. Podrick comes home to find his pet donkey, Jenny, has choked on one of Colm's fingers and died. He confronts Colm and warns him he will burn his house down the next day at 2 p.m., regardless of whether Colm is in it. The next day, Podrick sets fire to Colm's house as promised, but not before taking Colm's dog, Sammy, who is outside the house with him. Podrick looks into a window and sees Colm calmly sitting beside the burning built inside the burning building. Peter goes to Podrick's house, planning to beat him. He is diverted away by Mrs. McCormick, who leads him to Dominic's corpse floating in the nearby lake. The next morning, Podrick, with the dog Sammy, finds Colm standing on the beach beside his burnt-out house. 
Colm apologizes for the donkey's death and suggests destroying the house has ended their feud, but Podrick informs him that it only would have ended if he had stayed inside the house as it burned. When Colm wonders if the Civil War has ended on the mainland in Ireland, Podrick replies that he believes it may be a good thing that there are some things that cannot be moved on from. As Podrick turns to leave, Colm thanks him for looking after Sammy. Any time, Podrick responds. Unbeknownst to them, Mrs. McCormick is watching them from a distance by Colm's burned cottage. Okay, I absolutely love this movie. It's going to become one of those movies I return to over and over again when I'm in that mood for a dark but also hilarious movie. And I think that's the first thing that is important to understand about this movie if we're tr going to understand the overall ending and messages that the filmmakers were putting out there is that the tone of this movie is a dark comedy. So a lot of things that may be confusing may have been filmmaking decisions in the vein of comedy. Um, but it's about a friendship breakup that just acts as this allegory for war. And we've got some very dry wit, a lot of deadpan sort of comedy. So the overall basic ways to understand this movie is the tone, the deadpan, dark comedy. And also that this is a story about a friendship breakup that acts as this overall allegory um, for war. So we've got the civil war going on away from this secluded island, kind of in the distance. And a lot of the islanders don't really know what's going on. They're vaguely aware, but they don't really, they're not following it. They don't know who's fighting who or what side's winning or what it's even about. They just kind of see the cannon fire in the distance. I believe it's at the very beginning of the movie. Podrick kind of is looking out to the cannon fire and says something like, good luck to you, whatever it is you're fighting about. So yeah, nobody on the island seems to know much about or care about the war. The police officer doesn't even know which side is executing who when he gets called over to attend that execution. And... He also mentions it was easier to follow when we was all on the same side fighting the British. So not only is this a metaphor for war, it's about civil war specifically. It's about brother fighting brother. It's about when inside or insiders of one group begin to turn on each other. So that's why this is based on two best friends who then all of a sudden go from being joined at the hip go into the pub every single night together to very suddenly turning on each other. This is about civil war. This is about war with the people that you know, with people who live on the same land as you. And we begin the movie with this really happy vibe. We've got this upbeat Irish music. It's sunny. There's a rainbow. Podrick has got this pep in his step as he walks to his friend's house. But then the remainder of the movie, after we get the very early discovery that Colm no longer wants to be friends with Podrick, the remainder of the movie after that, just minutes in, becomes pretty dreary. 
Oh, and I wanted to just mention, even though this is obviously fictional, it's historical fiction. Um, so I wanted to give a little brief overview of the history of the Irish Civil War. So it's the Civil War that followed the war Ireland fought for independence from the British. And it lasted from June 1922 to May of 1923. And this movie, even though it's set on a fictional island, it's still historical fiction. And it's set just before the end of this war. We see on Colm's calendar that it is April 1923. So it is the last month of the Civil War. Now, if I were writing a paper about this movie and I had to come up with a thesis, I would say that the thesis that the filmmakers are trying to communicate, the message the filmmakers are trying to communicate, is that war is pointless and self-mutilation. And I'll get more into both of those things, but the pointlessness, the meaninglessness of war, I think is really articulated well in this movie. The big uh, question that everyone has in this movie from the very beginning is why such a sudden, abrupt decision to end this friendship by Colm? Why all of a sudden did they go from having hours-long conversations every day, going to the pub together every day, to just so suddenly and for no good reason, it appears, to go to war with each other with this friendship? Um, some of the explanations that the movie gives and characters in the movie suggest are maybe he just doesn't like you no more. Uh, you didn't say anything to me. You didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more is, is what Colm tells him. So it's just kind of like this meaningless but abrupt, violent uh, change in, in the pattern of, of their friendship. And um, Colm tells us that he wants to use his time doing better things, composing. He says that he has this tremendous sense of time slipping away. And he's decided just suddenly, abruptly, that he's not listening to any more of the dull things that uh, Padraig has to say. He doesn't want to waste any more of his life on aimless chatting. Um, he says, none of that does anything for me. And he calls Padraig dull. Um, and someone asks Colm, but Padraig has always been dull. What changed? And Colm replies, I've changed. And people also ask Colm, what are you hoping for? What are, what are you hoping to get out of this decision, this like brash, seemingly meaningless decision? He says, I'm hoping to get a little bit of peace. He basically, Colm is having a three-quarters life crisis. But the irony is that in the end, he is not getting even a little bit of peace. He's getting way less peace than he would have had if he had just continued this friendship with Podrick. In the end, he's even less able to do what he loves, which is play the fiddle, uh, than he was if the war, this friendship war, had never started in the first place. And so this weird tone of the movie, this weird part of the overarching storyline I think it feels weird on purpose. It feels like there's not any real justifiable reason that this is happening. And that is very purposeful as an allegory for war. That war is just 
so meaningless and can happen so abruptly for seemingly no apparent good reason. All right, and then another side that I had to my little thesis, because apparently I just think in those terms, not only is war meaningless, but it's also self-destructive, it's self-mutilation. So when civil in civil war, when the two sides go up against each other, they're really just, in the end, they're hurting themselves. It's self-destructive. And this is shown quite literally in this allegory with the friendship war, with literal self-mutilation, which I'm, of course, referring to Colm cutting off his fingers. Oh, I mean, there are some gruesome parts in this, but I will say at least, at least we did not see a scene of him actually cutting the fingers off, but throwing the individual fingers at the door is still pretty bad. <laughs> like picking it up. Oh, so gross. But um, so this is self-destruction and Podrick ruined his option of a better life that his sister offered him via letter at the end to join him on the mainland, start a better life. So um, in less of an obvious way, Podrick is also kind of taking part in this self-destructiveness by um, ruining a better option for his life and instead stays on the island to continue his revenge plot. So really, in their minds, they're going up against each other, but in the end, they're really just hurting themselves. And I think the fact that this is Colm doing it to his own fingers and this is Podrick telling his sister no, like, I'm not going to do this, I think that is very more meaningful and impactful than if for some way it was Podrick trying to get back at Colm by hurting him or cutting off his fingers, or Colm trying to ruin Podrick's future by somehow keeping him on the island instead of getting off to the mainland. By going to war against each other, by having this civil war, they're just self-destructive they're not even really doing anything to each other by engaging in this fight they're just hurting themselves um so i was looking around at some other theories for why colm was cutting his fingers off there's the idea that colm is dealing with they call it despair in the movie um which i'm assuming is just kind of old irish code word for what we understand today as depression as major depressive disorder maybe um so there's that with the despair also colm seems to be under so much pressure from his obsession to leave a legacy behind of him being a great musician of just wanting to be remembered that that pressure that he puts on himself to create that it makes him go a bit insane and in a way like in a very ironic way he has put so much pressure on himself that he finds a way to take that pressure off by literally maiming his hand so that he physically can't become this great musician. I mean, I guess he's still composing, but he's now almost relieved from that pressure, like has an excuse to not pressure himself so much to be this historical, amazing musician that goes down in history because he cuts off his fingers. 
And also, as he states in the movie, that he is just so bored. He says that um, in the middle of the movie, he says, I do worry that I'm just entertaining myself sometimes while I'm staving off the inevitable. So part of it is this three quarters life crisis, like, oh, I got to make my mark before I leave. But also just like, man, I am so bored. I do the same thing every day with this super dull person. And I listen for two hours about him telling me what he found in his donkey's poop. And just, he's bored. So he's depressed, he's bored, and he's putting unreasonable pressure on himself, driving him to a bit of insanity. Another theme we have here is loneliness. And I think that um, the sister here, Siobhan, I think a big part of her character is, or has to deal with the emotion of loneliness. Um, you see her, I, I love the scene where it shows that these this brother and sister, Padraig and Siobhan, they share this, not only do they share a house together, but they even share a bedroom. They've got two separate beds that are kind of close to each other. And there's the scene where they're both just laying there and Siobhan is just crying. And um, Patrick is just like, what is going on with everyone? Like, everything is fine. And she, the sister asked Patrick, do you ever get lonely? She is so lonely on this island. I mean, sure, she's got her brother, but let's face it, he's dull. <laughs> he's not this very sharp. And she seems to be this very intellectual person, this person that she's kind of like Belle at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. I want so much more than this provincial life sort of person. She's very bookish. And she finally gets her escape, you know, well into the movie where she gets this job as a librarian. And she decides to actually put herself first for the first time in a while, it seems like. She knows that it's going to be pretty crappy for Podrick for her to leave because he very much relies on her. But she decides to finally put herself first, address her loneliness by escaping this tiny, tiny little uh, island where there's really no one there for her other than her brother. And even her brother is not that connected with her, it seems like. So... That's Siobhan. I love Siobhan. I'm so happy that uh, she got nominated, that uh, Carrie Condon got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, because I think it's a bit of an understated role where it wasn't a, a really huge, you know, emotional or memorable role, but I think she did a really good job, and I'm really glad that the Academy's recognizing her for that. And going along with the fact that... <laughs> Podrick is all of a sudden becomes very concerned about whether he is a dull person. He's like, am I dull? And people respond like, no, you're not dull. You're nice. And the movie kind of shows how maybe nice people are dull. Like maybe those two attributes with someone go hand in hand. If you're nice, you're also kind of boring. You're kind of boring to be around. And <laughs> Colm kind of uh, brings this up in the middle when when Padraig has moved on from just being like really sad about like confused and then sad about their relationship abruptly ending, he 
starts getting mad and he he's no longer uh, being nice all the time. He's actually getting kind of mean. He's getting riled up. He fights back a little bit verbally. And Colm recognizes like, oh, you know what? He's finally kind of getting interesting because he's not nice anymore. And haven't we all worried at one time or another that maybe people around us during a certain interaction or even just in general might think we're dull? Like, am I dull? I just thought that that was so funny for a character to so straightforwardly be questioning that about themselves because it's something that I think a lot of us can relate to. Because we are kind of, it's built into us since childhood, like we should be nice, but also we want to be interesting, we want to stand out, we want to be the main character in the story, you know? Um, And then, on the other hand, the story kind of paints niceness being at odds with being interesting enough to be memorable. So Colm puts it as... Niceness doesn't last, but things like music and poetry and paintings and like high skill in the arts, those last. And I guess in his mind, in order to be a great musician, a great artist, you have to stop being nice. And I guess in a way, the only way, at least in his mind, that he saw to make more time for himself to dedicate himself to being memorable is to stop being so nice to this friend so that Podrick stops wasting his time. Um, He says, is it more important to be nice or to be remembered in 50 years time? Um, And so, yeah, when this movie kind of plays with the idea that when people stop being so nice, that's when they actually become interesting. That's when they actually make their mark on the world. And that seems a bit anti or counterintuitive because are we saying that when you pull out and look at this as a metaphor for war, that we should go to war because that keeps things interesting. And when you think about it, okay, I'm kind of, I'm processing this as I talk. Okay, so stick with me here. (laughs) This was not in my notes. This just popped up right now. Think back to the history classes if you had U.S. history while you were growing up. How many times did we learn about wars? I feel like that was almost the majority of all of my history classes, whether it was world history or U.S. history. And it's true that one of the most memorable things to happen to make it into the history books is war we'll remember a war in 50 in 50 years time but during peacetime when everyone's just nice maybe it's kind of boring at least there's nothing that's really happening as big of a deal as war that is remarkable enough to include in the history book all right war sucks but at least it's not boring or Peacetime is boring, but at least you're not getting your fingers cut off. I don't don't know. You kind of have to choose one side or the other. Um, And then another uh, theme I kind of saw here, kind of jokingly, is setting boundaries with people. I feel like there's been a big push, at least among um, maybe younger millennials and 
older Gen Zs um, about making sure to set boundaries with people so that you're not taken advantage of by other people in your life so that you're not walked all over and so that you can have a healthy but respectful or respected uh, relationships with people. And I just, I see that narrative everywhere. Like, this, remember to set good boundaries and don't, you know, don't do this. And it's okay to say no to things. And I feel, <laughs> I feel like this shows maybe uh, taking a boundary a little too far where Colm tells him, okay, I'm going to set a boundary with you. I don't want to be your friend anymore. If you don't respect that boundary, there's going to be consequences and I'm going to stick to those consequences. But even though he is very good at sticking to those boundaries and following through, um, he kind of maybe didn't choose the best way to enforce that boundary, which is cutting off his own fingers, of course. So in the future, yeah, it's great to set healthy boundaries with people, but maybe don't have self-mutilation as the uh, enforcement tactic there. All right. I also um, thought to myself, okay, I've heard the word banshee before, but I don't know if I could actually just like give you a definition. So I looked it up in case any of you were also wondering. A banshee is a female spirit in Irish folklore who heralds the death of a family member, usually by screaming, wailing, shrieking, or keening. So in this movie, uh, we get a few references to Banshees, some more straightforward, some not so much. It kind of seems like the filmmakers intended Mrs. McCormick, the older, kind of not all there uh, woman, they intended her character to be a Banshee of sorts in this movie. She's walking around in this long black cloak. She's got that stick with the sharp hook on the end. And most importantly, uh, playing her role as sort of a banshee human. She foreshadows the death of one, maybe two people. She doesn't necessarily shriek or scream so much, but she does communicate in like a sinister, creepy way. So Mrs. McCormick is a banshee. And then we also... <laughs> we have Colm talking with Paul Drake saying, yeah, I, I finished... The music composition that I was working on, I'm going to call it the Banshees of Inishirin. And Padraig asked him, well, why'd you decide to call it that? And he said, oh, well, it just sounds cool. You know, I like the double sh sound. So Banshees of Inishirin. <laughs> I think that kind of is just like really in line with the uh, comedic dry wit that the whole movie's tone is. So some confusing or maybe unanswered questions we have coming away from the movie. What happened to poor Dominic? Well, as we saw in the movie, tragically, his body is found in the lake at the end. So earlier in the film, we hear about someone who is reported to have killed themselves in the lake. So it may be that this is implying that Dominic also followed the same suit and committed suicide which would likely be due to a culmination of his father's abusive treatment and the sweet but painful love rejection from 
uh, Podrick's sister from Siobhan. Oh, my goodness. Poor Dominic. I just really felt for him, you know? He was just so sweet. Um, one of my biggest uh, ans- or questions that I came away from this movie with that I was still confused about were, why are these two guys even best friends in the first place? Why are Colm and Podrick the best of friends for so long? First off, there's this big age difference, like a very obvious big age difference, and also just a very obvious huge personality difference. So, like, how did these two even become best friends? And didn't Colm think that Podrick was dull and boring to be around at the very beginning? So how how did they ever become friends? I guess it is a tiny island, so you don't have that many choices, but I mean, still, it kind of reminds me of uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Back to the Future. And it's like, how did Marty McFly and Doc become friends? Like the movie just starts and they're just, uh, they're already like good friends. Randomly, this high school teenage boy with this old crazy scientist, but you know, you just... It's where the movie starts, and that's the way this movie starts, where they've been lifelong friends, and I guess we just accept it. (laughs) And then if we want some filmmaker hints here, this is an original screenplay, so this wasn't based on a book or a play, so there's no book hints, but there are filmmaker hints. Um, The writer and director of this movie, Martin McDonough, um, he had an interview with IndieWire, So there's a few quotes from him that I picked out that I thought help explain this movie a bit. He said, quote, I thought it was interesting that an artist would threaten the thing that allows him to make art. So he's referring to uh, Colm threatening to cut off his own fingers despite his um, passion for playing the fiddle. And then McDonough goes on to say that he himself is facing a similar quandary as Colm did. He said, you've got this much time left. What do you choose to devote to it? So in other words, McDonough himself is kind of facing this, ooh, I don't know how old he is, midlife, three-quarters life crisis in a similar way that Colm did. And is saying, okay, I want to make my mark on the world. What do I do? I'm going to create this masterful piece of artwork that is this film, The Banshees of Inishirin. And I think he did a pretty good job. I think he's going to be remembered. (laughs) And then, let's see, we've also got a bit about Padraig's sister escaping the monotony of island life. McDonough commented on this as well. He said, she started out as the sisterly voice of reason. If you go down that road with her intelligence, her empathy, and her anger, by the end, you feel that she's got to either commit suicide or leave the place. And there you have it, folks. That's what I've got for you on analyzing the ending and meaning of the Banshees of Inisherin. It's now time for my personal favorite part of every podcast episode which is going through my favorite letterbox reviews uh, of the, whichever movie I am covering. So first off, we've got Ella 
who left a four-star review. I will not leave my donkey outside when I'm sad. I agree, Ella. If I ever get into that situation, definitely will not leave my poor cute donkey outside when someone, when I'm in a weird finger war with my ex-best friend. Uh, Lily gave up five stars and said that one unemployed friend at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. Laura gave up four stars. Men will literally cut their fingers off before going to therapy. <laughs> Let's see. Demi here gave it four and a half stars and wrote more of a uh, real review. They said, probably McDonough's opus to me. Fascinating to see someone whose work I have generally thought of as bitter, cynical, and spiteful in a clever and entertaining way, confronts the way that bitterness, cynicism, and spite isolate and destroy people by deadening the things that kept their kindness afloat. And it's so funny. Everyone involved is at the top of their game, but I'm particularly impressed by Colin Farrell. And then Joel gave it four stars and said, one of the best breakup movies in recent memory, also one of the most brutal, unrelenting in its portrayal of our desperation in the face of abandonment. We'll mutilate ourselves beyond recognition if it means having things our way, leaving us with nothing but a pathetic, I told you so. But who even is I at that point? Who is you? And then Brian gave it four and a half stars and left a review that tastefully just quotes one of Taylor Swift's lyrics. So it's going to be forever or it's going to go down in flames. Love it. Patrick said, most Irish thing I've seen in years and gave it four and a half stars. Justin gave it four stars and said, as a dull person, this hit close to home. <laughs> Justin, I can relate. And then Freya gave it five stars and said, Colin Farrell, I'm so fond of you and your unnatural eyebrow acting abilities. And then last but not least, Alba gave it four stars and said, I'm an overthinker who thinks all of my friends hate me and are bored of me, so this is literally my worst nightmare. All the same. <laughs> all right, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review Ending Explained on whatever platform you're listening on. I love being able to create this content, and this is a quick and easy way to show a little love in return. Till next episode.